Stay hungry, stay foolish. I guess the time has come where we've got to finish this up. (laughs) It's with a heavy heart uh, I do it. It's been uh, fantastic and I've learned so much. It's a mixed feeling I have, I have to say. You know, all all good things come to an end sometime or another. They do indeed. They do so. indeed. We better get into it. I don't want to lose any time. So, Dee, we've covered up until your present life. You've mentioned that you've lived many, many lives, and we're going to cover your present life. So this is the 36 years from age 55 to the present, which cover your current activities and what the future holds for all of us. Today, we will go beyond your book and cover a series of your essays, your philosophies, which are all available on your website, which I'll share at the very end. But the question I have for you is, at 70, what drove you to devote your life without compensation to the seemingly impossible task of realizing those four burning objectives that followed you throughout your life to create massive societal change? Yes, Aiden, uh Well, I decided that although I thought the four objectives were literally impossible, after a year of travel and talking to people, I came to realize that there might be some slight chance of realizing them. And then the question was, did I want to uh, devote a large chunk of my life to trying to realize that? And I became concerned... uh, By that time, I had seven grandchildren, and I was very concerned that uh, if we had massive societal failure and institutional failure, they might not have a very livable life. That led to the realization that they could not have a livable life unless all grandchildren had the same, and I didn't want to risk that someday they would find out I'd been asked to try to do this and I'd refuse because I couldn't think of a a sensible answer I could give them. So I decided that I would plunge in and do it. And it was based upon an understanding that I had developed over the years about the kind of societal change we need and a realization that we're emerging from a society based upon industrial production uh, for more than a century dominated by uh, these separatist top-down concepts of organization, the nation, state, corporations, and so on, and that we were emerging into an extraordinarily complex, diverse, global technocracy wherein It's increasingly possible to produce at any point on the globe a unique product or service for a single individual located at any other point. The production of goods and services, in my perspective, had progressed from the age of handcrafting through the industrial age, which I think is more accurately thought of as the age of machine crafting, into the so-called information age, which can best be thought of as the age of mind-crafting, since information is nothing but the raw material of that incredible processor we call mind and the pseudo-mind we call computer. 
and software, the tool which which we shape information, can best be understood as thoughtware, since it's clearly a product of the mind. The age of machine crafting was primarily an extension of muscle power through use of fossil fuels, and the chaotic age, as I call it, is primarily an extension of mental power. Now, the very foundation of such a society, its uh, neural networks, if you will, are the intricately webbed global data communication systems that are just emerging in an enormous rate. And just as the human body is organized around biological neural systems so complex as to defy description, so too are these increasingly complex global electronic neural networks evolving and interconnecting. So it seemed to me that at the age of handcrafting, the dominant forms of organizations were the all-powerful churches, kingdoms, and handcraftsmen's guild. And just as the age of machine crafting ended their dominance in favor of hierarchical nation states and corporations, the chaotic age must end the dominance of today's societal structure and give rise to new ones more in harmony with human spirit and the biosphere. And changes in the existing organization and the organization of new ones are going to have many characteristics in common. Just as the human body is not a vertical hierarchy with each part superior to another in ascending linear order, organizations of the future will not be so structured these great pyramids of superiors and subordinates will have to yield to affiliations of semi-independent equals, whether they be individuals within an organization or organizations within a larger whole. And this is not to say that all present industrial organizations are doomed. Evolution is rarely that cruel. Evolution is patient, though it's inexorable, and most of them will evolve, however slowly and painfully, into a form in which power, wealth, and information are more widely dispersed and commonly shared. And the concepts of organizations composed of semi-autonomous equals, such as Visa, the Internet, Linux Software, the United Religions Initiative, and Wikipedia has intensified the endless debate as to whether competition or cooperation should rule the day. And each one has passionate messiahs to preach its virtues. And the messiahs on both sides are wrong. Competition and cooperation are not contraries. They have no opposite meaning. They're complementary. In every aspect of life, we do both. Schools are highly cooperative endeavors within which scholars vigorously compete. Olympic Games combine immense cooperation 
and structure and rules with intense competition and events. As the runners leap from the blocks, competition and cooperation are occurring in a single indistinguishable blur. You can look at it this way. Every cell in our bodies vigorously competes for every atom of nutrients swallowed and every atom of oxygen inhaled. Yet every cell consents when the good of the whole requires they cooperate by relinquishing their demands when the need of other cells is greater. Life simply cannot exist, let alone reach its highest potential, without harmonious existence of competition and cooperation. Now, no societal, commercial, or governmental ever endeavor has ever existed without at least some combination of the two. The whole of human history has always been a race without a victor between combat and compromise, between concepts of power and concepts of service. Now, cooperation gone mad results in the mindless pursuit of equality, then uniformity, and then use of central force to achieve it. And that means ever-increasing coercion and eventual slavery. And competition gone mad results in mindless efforts to uh, pursue self-interest, abuse of others, retaliation, accelerating anarchy, and eventual chaos. And only in a much more harmonious oscillating dance of both can the extremes of control and chaos be avoided and peaceful permanent societal order be found. So if there is relative harmony between these two opposites, they drive one another. The more we compromise, the more we compete. The more we compete, the more we need to cooperate and so on indefinitely. And I believe in organizations of the future, it's going to be much more important to have a clear, compelling purpose and sound principles within which many short-term objectives can be quickly achieved than any long-range plan with fixed, measurable objectives. In organizations of the future, The centuries-old effort to eliminate judgment and intuition, art, if you will, from the conduct of institutions will change. Organizations have too long aped the traditional mechanistic military model, wherein obedience orders is paramount and individual behavior or independent thinking frowned upon, if not altogether forbidden. So in the future, it's going to be necessary at every level to have people capable of discernment, of making fine judgments and acting sensibly upon them. The industrial age trend towards stultifying, degrading rote work that gradually reduces people to the compliant, subordinate behavior one expects from a well-trained horse simply can't continue. 
it extends far beyond a factory worker on an assembly line. Vast white-collar bureaucracies exist everywhere, with mountains of procedures, manuals, depressing minds, avalanches of directives burying judgment, forests of reports obscuring perception, floods of studies inundating initiative, and oceans of committees submerging responsibility and drowning decisions. And everybody knows what I mean. We're all experiencing and have endlessly suffered through it, and worse yet, may be inflicting it on others. It has created a society of people alienated from their work and from the organizations in which they're enmeshed. Far too much ingenuity, effort, and intelligence goes into conforming to or circumventing this mindless, sticky web of rules and regulations by which people are needlessly bound. There's a quote that I pulled that encapsulated what you just talked about. And you said in the book, bureaucracies with mountains of procedures, manuals, depressing minds, avalanches of directives, burying judgment, forests of reports, obscuring perception, floods of studies, inundating initiative, oceans of committees, submerging responsibility and drowning decisions. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of organizations are. And the bigger the organization, the more they are in that world. And you got there a long time before many others, you realized this was a burgeoning problem. And you dealt with it when you put visa together when you let visa emerge from having good principles and having good people put in the right places and then empowering their human ingenuity. But with the awareness that you had, and that you have now, what did you do with that awareness? Where did you go next? Well, I had become convinced through a year of travel that there was some slight chance that maybe we could realize the four objectives that we discussed in our last session. Therefore, I decided I would devote my life not to the ranch and to study, but I would come out of that and see if I could in some way catalyze this kind of change. And it led then to 10 years of effort that is just almost impossible to describe. I was uh, contacted by uh, an amazingly diverse group of people that were seeking help. Among them was uh, an alliance of uh, fishermen in, in the Northwest Atlantic uh, fisheries off the coast of Maine who were uh, attempting to devise some way to restore the fisheries, which were literally in a state of collapse from overfishing. Another group was an initiative of family farmers wondering how they could come together in some sort of an alliance that would preserve family farms and organic, locally grown uh, produce. Another group that came to me was the Societal for Organizational Learning, which was a, a group in MIT uh, based on work uh, Peter Singe had done uh, and they were trying to organize this so it could 
emerge internationally in a series of fractals. Uh, I was contacted by uh, Ralph Nader for help with something he called the Appleseed Foundation, in which he was trying to create uh, a series of organizations in which lawyers in every community would come together and volunteer their expertise to find uh, whatever was the most compelling legal problem in that community and uh, find a solution to it. Uh, another group was the uh, a series of states, uh, each of which had a, a, a large amount of geodata, but it was in silos in each state, and they were trying to figure out how to coordinate that nationally so that they could develop much more useful geodata to uh, solve some of the environmental problems. And then I was contacted by an interesting fellow who was the former Episcopal Bishop of California who had created something called the United Religions Initiative where uh, they wanted to bring together people from different religious persuasions at the grassroots level uh, to try to put an end to religious violence. But they simply had no concept of how to organize it. And I was contracted by the veterans' health care system as to how this could be applied to uh, revolutionizing the health care. And I had educational systems uh, contact me. And I had an alliance of energy producers. And even to the, the point that the chief of staff of the Army asked me how I could uh, apply these to the organizations of the Army. And the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare contacted me. And to do this, it was impossible to advise all these groups and to see if any of them could replicate the visa experience. And some other foundations offered grants. And in order to accept those grants, it was necessary to form a not-for-profit chaotic alliance, which uh, had a small staff of three and then six And at one point, as we were developing this, we received a letter from a law firm in New England, and it asked if uh, we were to receive a million-dollar anonymous gift, what would we do with it? But the donor, potential donor, wanted to remain anonymous. So I wrote back and outlined how we would use this to try to create these organizations and realize the four objectives. And and in response, we had a million dollars deposited to the bank account of the Chaotic Alliance with a letter that simply said they were familiar with the work we were doing, believed in it, and wanted to support it. But I quickly became, uh, ran into the impossibility of leading the formation of groups of this kind as I had led Visa. Because to create these organizations requires leadership from within the individual groups. 
and then them uh, able to find their own resource and funding. And the difficulty of developing leaders capable of replicating the visa experience in all these other areas was simply impossible. They didn't exist. Um, And so I could, uh, uh, they simply couldn't understand and implement the concept. So I could only act as advisor to these groups, and that simply didn't work. Occasionally, they had great success. uh, For example, the United Religions Initiative is now uh, has fractals in virtually every country in the world. But by and large, most of the uh, ventures simply disintegrated. They didn't go on. And meanwhile, this was leading me into dozens of speaking engagements in the U.S. and overseas. Uh, having to run the small not-for-profit, having a ranch to run, um, and uh, growing family affairs, three children, seven grandchildren. And Ferrell, my wife, the love of my life, had developed some illnesses, and it just wasn't practical for her to continue to live in the ranch. And I had also a growing loss of hearing. I'd lost over half my hearing. So uh, with all these pressures, there had been no time to fulfill the contract to write the book. So in 1990, at the age of 70, I was pulled in a hundred different directions and just physically unable to continue the the ranch or to uh, continue all the work I was doing. Something had to be done. Throughout all of this, I had never stopped rising at five in the morning every day for two or three hours of study before I started work on all these things. And it led to another understanding of the magnitude of what would be required to create a global organizational change. And it has to do with something I called uh, crusty, which I, I could probably explain a little bit, just so your listeners can understand the magnitude of what's happening. And during these years, a new perception was gradually merging. And it was based upon trying to understand the history and effect of a single fascinating capacity. The capacity to receive, utilize, store, transform, and transmit information, which for purposes of brevity, I just took the first letter of each one and call it CRUSTI, C-R-U-S-T-T-I. Capacity to receive, utilize, store, transform, and transmit information. And I don't mean information from the common misconception of alphanumeric data, but from Gregory Bateson's incredible perspective 
that information is a difference that makes a difference. If something perceived can't be distinguished from its surroundings in a relevant way, it's just noise. And if it can be differentiated and truly makes a difference, then it becomes information. And as such, it's capable of informing us, of forming within us, and allowing us to formulate differences that can make a difference to others. Now, to understand this capacity, it's essential to really start at the beginning. If you examine early examples of single-celled life, it's apparent they possess the capacity to receive, store, utilize, transform, and transmit information. And in fact, it precedes even such simple forms, for to do that is the very essence of DNA. And it even precedes DNA. For when physicists attempt to examine the smallest known particles of matter, the matter, the particles change their behavior and become waves. And when they do, the physicists change their behavior in response. So the particle and the physicist find themselves in a fascinating quantum cosmic dance. And clearly, each of them is perceiving a difference that makes a difference. They're exchanging information. Now, in ways we haven't begun to understand, Information escapes particles, transcends them, and binds them together into more complex systems within which all particles constantly exchange information. And that seems to me a principle of evolution, perhaps the fundamental principle, that the greater the capacity to receive, store, utilize, transform, and transmit information, the more diverse and complex the entity. And that holds true from neutrino to nucleus to atom to amino acids to proteins to molecules to cells to organs and to organisms or you might say from bacteria to bees to bats to birds to buffalo and right on through to baseball players. But Krusty didn't stop there. In time, information transcended the boundaries of organisms and led to communications between them. Whether the dance of the bees, the pheromone of ants, the sonar of bats, the song of birds, or the language of people, once that capacity transcended organisms, there was immediate evolutions of complex communities of organisms, hives, flocks, packs, colonies, herds, and tribes. Now let's follow that capacity with respect to our own species. Throughout history, many of our finest minds have argued 
that the two characteristics that most distinguish the human species are memory and language. And memory is nothing but the ability to store and recall images. And language is nothing but the means to share those images. So over the centuries, as a species, we've ascended a ladder of diversity and complexity. With language, information escaped the boundaries of a single mind, and experience could become shared. And immediately there was a corresponding like leap in societal diversity and complexity. And with written language came expansion of that which could be manually recorded and personally transported. Immediately there was another leap in societal diversity and complexity. And leap has followed leap, each exponentially greater and more frequent. With mathematics came expansion to that which could be commonly understood uh, by means of a global language, because that's all mathematics is, is a global language. With the printing press came expansion to that which could be mechanically recorded and transported. A library, after all, is nothing more than the collective memory of the species. And with the telegraph came electronic alphanumeric capacity. With the telephone came phonic capacity. With television came visual capacity, followed by multimedia capacity. And each was immediately followed by an even greater leap in societal diversity and complexity. And you could almost... Uh, paraphrase Einstein's famous quotations to say that the capacity to relieve, receive, utilize, store, transform, and transmit information results in societal diversity times societal complexity squared. But then all of a sudden it happened with the explosion of microelectronic technology in the last quarter of the 20th century, we developed a thousand times better algorithms, a million times more computing capacity per individual, and a billion times more mobility of information. And software to efficiently navigate that immensity of information is rapidly emerged. The truth is that the entire collective memory of the species will soon be no more than a few keystrokes away. And we haven't begun to understand the significance of all this, let alone the societal diversity it will unleash or the institutional change that will demand. And yet that is nothing compared to what lies ahead. Already present are other revolutions of enormously greater significance, such as nano and biotechnology. And simply stated, nanotechnology is the engineering of self-replicating assemblers and computers 
so tiny they can manipulate atoms, the basic building blocks of nature, as though they were bricks. The necessary science has already been discovered, and all that remains to be done is the engineering of tools at the atomic scale, and that's already well along. In his book, Engines of Creations, K. Eric Drexler, a pioneer in the field of nanotechnologies, wrote that when biochemists need complex molecular machines, they have to borrow them from cells. Advanced molecular technology will eventually let them build their circuits and nanomachines as easily as engineers now build microcircuits or washing machines. And in answer to the question, what could we build with these atom stacking mechanism, Marvin Minsky, a professor of science at MIT wrote, we could manufacture assembly machines much smaller even than living cells, make materials stronger and lighter than any available today. Hence, tiny devices that can travel along capillaries to enter and repair living cells. And the possibilities are just profound and scarcely imaginable. And yet, there's nothing really new in all this. It's the fundamental technique which nature has used to create everything since the beginning of time, whether trees, monkeys to climb in them, or people to cut them down. Information in the form of DNA is endlessly replicated at no cost and distributed in seeds. A process of replication driven by the power of the sun begins. Molecules and cells assembly on the spot in the known patterns from atoms and surrounding air, soil, and water. And in the case of animals, this replication happens not only on the spot, but on the move. And when such creations are no longer viable, nature breaks them down into atoms once again for recreation into something new and useful. And it's a never-ending, effective, non-polluting chain of events of ever-involving diversity and complexities. No factories, no waste, no despoiled resources, no pollution, no mechanistic organizations, and no command and control. Nature does it all with a complex, diverse flow of information which mobilizes physical material into both animate and inanimate forms. And you can search in vain in the universe and all of nature for any hierarchical, mechanistic, command and control form of an organization, such as those we created to manage the industrial age that now dominate our lives. Well, the question becomes how soon and how likely are these things? And we need only remember that a few decades ago, the atomic bomb was scarcely a theory, traveled to the moon, a fantasy, 
television, the dream of a few odd engineers, a plastic card for the global exchange of value unthinkable, and genetic engineering securely locked up in the secrets of DNA. Yet none of these had a better theoretical or scientific foundation than nanotechnology or biotechnology has today. And none were being driven by the incredible force of change now common through the world. And as microtechnology builds down and nanotechnology and molecular biology build up, they're going to come together. Within two or three decades, for better or worse, we will be constructing products and services from the atom up, and this capacity to receive, store, utilize, transform, and transmit information will be at the heart of it. The message is simple. Fasten your seat belts. The turbulence has scarcely begun. We're in the midst of an explosion of societal diversity and complexity much greater than we can possibly imagine. And we're going to manage such an explosion of societal diversity and complexity with archaic 17th century industrial age concepts of organization and management, not the chance of a snowball in the Sahara Desert. Within a few decades, we will look upon our present methods of organization and management as quaint relics of an archaic industrial age. And if we don't, our descendants will be forced to live through a period of social carnage and environmental devastation too horrible to contemplate. And one only needs to look today at the coronavirus pandemic, which is rewriting the face of society. So if any of your listeners think to perpetuate the old ways, they should try to recall the last time evolution rang their number to ask their consent. These things are happening and we will either adjust to them or we will self-destruct. Dee, it's such a pleasure to listen to your philosophies and you're calling out these realities that many, many world leaders and business leaders and organizational leaders aren't paying heed to. And unfortunately, the best way for a human being to learn is experience, and that's been thrust upon us. There's a paper written in 1956 by a renowned cognitive psychologist called George Miller, and he published a paper called The Magical Number Seven, Plus or Minus Two. And in that paper, he outlined the limited capacity for processing information for a human being. And he argued that although the brain can store a lifetime of knowledge in its trillions of connections in the brain, like you can, and like you have done and portrayed in both this show and throughout your books, the brain is limited on average to holding seven pieces of information in conscious and awareness at any one time. So that's the rationale, the magical number seven plus or minus two. The reason I bring that up is 
you had so much on your plate, literally, like you reminded me of a picture of somebody keeping plates on top of sticks and keeping them running. And with that, you had the demands at home, your own health and physical challenges, and then feral, and then the ranch, and these things that you were really drawing you back all the time. And throughout your life, you always manage so many things. But at this stage, you had to start letting some things go in order to proceed with life. So how did you manage that wind down of things? Well, Aiden, I was at 70, pulled in so many different directions. And I was aware that my abilities were inevitably going to decline physically and eventually uh, probably mentally too. I had some successes during those years, but uh, there was a growing realization that my beliefs and the work were still decades ahead of their time. And there was a compelling need to conserve and concentrate my time and energies. And so uh, I was faced with what to do next. And I decided that it, it, it was time to simply pull in my horns. So over the next five years, I sold the ranch. I withdrew from the chaotic alliance. We moved to Olympia, Washington uh, to be near our youngest grandchildren. I uh, gradually phased out all my speeches and travel to concentrate on family, writing the book I was obliged to write, and advising just a few selected organizations. And so I uh, bought two acres of land overlooking the water in Olympica, Washington, near my daughter and grandchildren, and um, returned to gardening, oil painting, which I loved and I'd had to give up, lettering and carving stone. And uh, shortly after we moved there, within the course of six months, I survived a double knee replacement and colon cancer and a heart attack. Uh, at 86 years of age, uh, Furl's health declined and I became her primary uh, caretaker until her death two years ago after uh, 75 marvelous years together. And so uh, we moved to Olympia in uh, just at the turn of the century. And the 20 years since, I've phased everything out. And uh, now at 92, uh, my, fur my wife having died two years ago, I find myself writing another book, taking calls and receiving visitors from... Uh, around the world who are moving in the direction of uh, more equitable, autonomous organizations that are more in harmony with the human spirit and biosphere. And more and more people are discovering my book and work. And so I have no shortage of people who, uh, who are contacting me. And I guess Aiden, uh, 
your call is is among them and uh, and our joint decision to do this series for your listeners and yes. i suppose i could uh, end it all by simply uh, saying to anyone who's listening that my uh, abiding hope and deepest wish for them all as that they could also dream their dreams and realize them. So that's probably a good place to leave it. Before I thank you immensely, I pulled a quote that I loved from the book because I think you mentioned it there. This coronavirus is only the start of some chaos that we're going to encounter. And this is a quote that I found so positive and hopeful, and it goes as follows from your book. We are not helpless victims in the grasp of some supernatural force. We were active participants in the creation of our present consciousness. From that consciousness, we created our present internal model of reality. From that internal model of reality, we created our present concepts of organization and accounting. With those concepts, we created our present society. We did it, all of us. We know that we must do better. We know that we must do it together, and we must come to understand that such together must transcend all present boundaries and allow self-organization and governance at every scale, from the smallest form of life to the living earth itself. It will take time. It will require great respect for the past, vast understanding and tolerance of the present, and even greater belief and trust in the future. It is an odyssey that calls out to the best in us, one and all. Dee, I mentioned that quote because it inspires me. It talks to the essence of this show, and I believe you answered my call. I called you several times over a period of two years, and you eventually agreed. But I feel we connected on some level, and I know you don't embark on any project easily, and when you do it, you do it wholeheartedly. And from the depths of my very being, it's been an honor, a pleasure, and a privilege. Thank you for educating me, for influencing me, and for inspiring me, and countless others. And I hope so many people will hear this show and your knowledge will be shared, and I'll do my very best to share it. Founder and CEO Emeritus of Visa, and author of The Birth of the Chaotic Age and its updated version, One from Many, Visa and the Rise of the Chaotic Organization, D. Hawk. Thank you so much for your time and the beautiful conversations we have shared. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Aidan. And uh, Aidan, I very much appreciate your interest and the opportunity to uh, discuss my life with you and uh, to share some of it uh, with your listeners. I've had a marvelous life, Aidan. I, uh, I simply couldn't possibly ask for more. And, uh, and I don't know how many more years I've got, but I'm excited about them and, uh, and can't imagine what will happen next. So, uh, I guess we'll both find out and, and, and we'll know in a couple of months how your listeners respond to this. And I'll be interested in knowing. You can find Dee's work all about his books. You can find them on D W Hawk, dot com d e e w h o c k 
dhawk.com and D is still active on Twitter as well where you can find them at dhawk. Thank you. Thank you again.